Father, we thank you that you are ever with us, that our prayers are always heard, and that you delight when your people offer up prayers in complete dependence upon you, your sovereign grace and power. We understand that they cannot get through the difficulties of life without you. We have no wisdom apart from you. We are totally dependent upon you. So, Lord, we pray. We pray to praise you. We pray to thank you. We pray to make our petitions known, even though you're already aware of them. We pray to unburden our soul. We pray more to adjust our heart than to adjust the surroundings. We pray to get in tune with you. So now, Lord, we ask that you will forgive sin and come to our aid and open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your holy law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen, amen. The psalmist said, out of the depths have I cried unto you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be feared. Soul, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. I say more than those who watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy. And with him is plenteous redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all their transgressions. That psalm, Psalm 130, expresses the normal Christian life. That is, all too often, the normal experience that we face out of the depths. I don't know how to read Latin, but when I study the scriptures, I like to get into the words, whether it's Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New. And then I like to study different translations because they often cast a, a slightly different perspective on some biblical truth. And I found something interesting this week that I had never known about Psalm 130. It starts out, out of the depths. In the Latin Vulgate, the first words are de profundis. And that many people call this psalm de profundis. Now, what is interesting is that in the English language, we have a word profound. And what does profound literally mean? Deep. It's the Latin word for deep, out of the deep places out of the depths and so the idea is if you're talking about someone who's very intellectual uh, maybe they have uh, the ability to handle complex issues and get to the heart of them we might say that that person is very profound they're very deep de profundis out of the depths that's where most of us often live we are in the deep places and we're often over our heads. I was also shocked to see how many 
people, especially in the arts, have taken that phrase and attached it to a poem like Tennyson or to a letter like Oscar Wilde when he was in prison or to some great piano sonata like uh, one of the great composers. It's a record label, it's an album, it's a book, it it's a song. It describes all of life because often in life, you and I are in over our heads. Have you ever been there? I mean, you si suddenly realize that you're drowning. You're drowning in, in a sea of loneliness. You're drowning in a sea of debt. Maybe it's in the troubles of the consequences of your own sin. Even Shakespeare, when he was talking about Hamlet, described him in that famous statement, the famous uh, soliloquy of Hamlet, where he says, to be or not to be, and whether I should fight against the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or I should stand against the seas of trouble. That is the experience that you and I often have. Troubled seas we live in, sometimes of our own making, sometimes thrust upon us because of nothing we've done. And we're in it over our heads. This psalm is for you. The genius of the book of Psalms is that it experiences, describes every human situation that you can think of. Not only does it describe how you and I are often emotionally at our wit's end and drowning, but it describes how we get out of it. Because the psalmist goes from the depths to the heights. He goes from despair to deliverance. And if that's what he does in a mere eight verses, I want to know how to do it. I want to practice that. I want to experience that same type of growth. And that's why we study this morning the wonderful Dei Profundis, so we can get out of it by the grace of God. This is, in a very real sense, a psalm of ascent. It's a pilgrim psalm, so the worshipers of God on their way to worship with the rest of the community would be thinking about things like this, the troubles in their life and how to be rescued from them. This is the sixth of the seventh penitential psalms. And so there is going to be some confession in it. But it's a psalm designed to help us get a perspective on a life that often seems to be filled with a sea of troubles. Four movements I see, and the first one in the first three verses is that of affliction. This is where the psalmist cries out, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication or to my cry for mercy. I think the depths often produce in us a rare trait of Christian character that cannot be produced anywhere else. You know the pearls come from the deep waters. And sometimes it's when we're over our heads that we begin to learn that we are nothing and God is everything. I'm convinced that the Lord allows us, by grace, for his ultimate glory and our good, 
He allows us to go through the depths. Sometimes he sends us out into the seas, like he did to the disciples while he, while he was up on the mountain praying. Sometimes it's God's purpose for us to be like Jonah because of our own sin in the belly of the fish. Or like Peter, who loses faith and perspective and begins to sink as he walks on the waves to Jesus. It's the Lord's purpose to allow us to go through deep waters so that he can show us how amazing his grace is, so we can grow and so we can understand what it is to connect with him. So the depths is a great place to pray. John Vaughn is right when he says everyone prays, but not everyone cries out. But those who do cry out to God, the majority would say, I owe it to the depths. That's where I learned to cry. Oh, prayers can be offered in a very perfunctory fashion. We can go through the ritual of our regular prayers quite easily. But it's when when you're in the depths that you learn to cry, right? Hannah, is that true? In the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel chapter 1, you have no children. And your rival is constantly mocking you and rebuking you. And Hannah says, no, that's right. We went to worship once in Jerusalem, and my heart was so burdened. I cried out for a son. Scripture tells us that she was praying in her heart. Her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli, the priest, thought she was drunk, rebuked her for it. She said, my Lord, I'm not drunk. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. And I'm pouring out my soul to God. That's what a cry is. Pouring out your soul to God. And we often don't do that unless we're in the depths. We owe the depths a great deal of gratitude. It's not that we enjoy them, but we're thankful for them. They produce in us something we could get no other way. Listen to David as he prays in Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. And I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. Lord, my eyes fail looking for you. That sounds like someone praying in the depths who's not giving, getting any answers. That sounds like someone who's crying more than just once. Repeatedly looking for help and no help comes. That is the experience of the psalmist in Psalm 130. So he cries out. And notice who he cries out to. There is, if you count it, Count the repeated names of the Lord. There are eight different times that God is addressed in this psalm. Eight different names. Five times it's the name Yahweh, and three times it's the name Adonai. Yahweh means the one who makes a promise and keeps it. Adonai means master. And those are two perspectives of God you need when you're in the depths. God makes promises and keeps them. And oh, by the way, he is your Lord. And he tells you where to go. And he'll be with you in the midst of that situation. 
So he cries out to Yahweh, verse 1, verse 3, verse 5, twice in verse 7. And he cries out to his master in verse 2, verse 3, and verse 6. His perspective is right. God makes promises and keeps them. And he is my Lord. I will trust him. By the way, some of the best prayers you ever pray are prayed in the worst places. Do you ever think about that? Bad places develop good prayers. I know that this discussion in this little poem is more about the proper attitude and the proper posture in prayer, but I like the message of this particular poem. It's talking about a debate between a layman and three theologians dealing with how to pray. It goes like this. The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes, the only proper attitude is down upon his knees. If I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing with arms outstretched and reaching to the skies. No, 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 said Elder Snow. That posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. And the debate goes on a few more verses until one man speaks up who wasn't a theologian. He said, last year I fell into our well, said Farmer Harry Brown, with both my feet a-sticking up, my head a-pointing down. And I did pray right then and there the best prayer I ever said, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed, a-standing on my head. <laughs> Which simply highlights the truth that some of the best prayers are prayed in the worst places. So maybe God picks me up and puts me in the darkness so that I can learn that he is the light. Learn like I've never learned it before. See it like I've never seen it before. And grow in grace to avoid all kinds of future problems and blessings that I can't even imagine will be mine if I learn today that God is the light. Verse 2, he says, Lord, hear my voice. Do you think God wants to hear your voice? You know, we get irritated sometimes with people who are always asking us for things. And sometimes the voice of people can irritate us. But the voice of faith is never an irritant to the ears of God. Our human voice always finds acceptance with the divine ear. When Solomon was having the temple dedicated, he prayed in 2 Chronicles 6, Now, may, my God, may your eyes be open." and your ears attentive to the prayers that come from this place. And the psalmist says in Psalm 34, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. Interesting. His ears are attentive to their cry when they really get serious and really get passionate. The prayers of the upright are his delight, Proverbs says. And God wants to be known as the God who hears and answers prayer, Psalm tells us. I think it's 62, 65. That's the name of God. He delights to hear our prayers. So in the midst of our difficult time, we need to pray. In the midst of our affliction, we need to cry out. And the ears of God are open to the voice of our supplication. Now notice as he's praying... 
And this happens when you bow in prayer and think of God. You're reminded of your own sin. Or this could be the indicator that David's sea of trouble, the depths that David was in, was really due to his own rebellion. He says, O Lord, if you keep a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? By the way, it's interesting that the Hebrew language has 14 different words for sin. 14. Did you know that the Eskimo language has 100 words, 100 100 different words for snow? That was actually discovered way back in 1911, and most scientists scoffed at that, but recently the Smithsonian Institute verified it. Yes, they have hundreds of words for snow. Which means if you're dominated by something, you learn to express it in your vocabulary. You and I are so unacquainted with sin that one or two words will do. We'll throw some adjectives in front of those words, but the Hebrews had 14 different words for sin. This word meant crooked. It means that you're supposed to be walking a straight path, God's path, and you're veering offline. My crookedness. Lord, if you kept a a record of every sin I've ever committed, I'm in deep trouble. In fact, it's a question with an obvious answer. No one can stand. And if you can't stand, you fall. And if you fall in the final day of judgment, it's all over. That's why Luther called this one of the Pauline Psalms. Because God here is not dealing with us as our transgressions deserve. He's not building a record upon which he judges us. God does keep a record, but thankfully we can be judged by something other other than our own accomplishments and other than our own demerit. We can be judged by the grace of God. Notice verse 4. But there is forgiveness with you, therefore you are to be feared. And that's why Luther said this is a Pauline psalm. What did he mean? It's got the gospel in it. It emphasizes salvation by grace, forgiveness by not our own works, but God's goodness and God's mercy. But there is forgiveness with you. God delights in forgiveness. Now, we could never survive if we were judged by our own deeds. The only way we can be saved is through the merit of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And when he paid the penalty for our sin, he provided free forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all sin in any one of its various forms or terms. But there is forgiveness with you. Isn't that a great truth? Forgiveness with God. Now, if God so freely forgives me, won't that encourage my own sin? I mean, if God just wipes my sin away, and I don't have to pay for it, I don't have to endure some kind of penance for it, I don't have to earn forgiveness, if I freely get forgiveness, will that not make me freely sin? No, no, because forgiveness breeds fearing. Did you notice that? There is forgiveness with you, Therefore, I learn to fear your name. 
If I think lightly of my sin, I'll think lightly of my Savior. If I don't understand that sin brings eternal condemnation, then his rescue on the cross will mean little to me. If I'm forgiven much, I will love much. And that's why the Bible reminds us of our sin, so that we can be reminded of his great grace. That's why tonight at the communion service, we're going to be reminded that we are sinners. We are great sinners, but God is a greater Savior. That's the gospel. And forgiveness doesn't breed a lax lifestyle. God's grace doesn't engender in us this attitude that now I'm going to sin all I want because I can get more grace. No, if you've truly been forgiven, it will instead develop in you this attitude of fear in God. It's the fear of God that's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. And by the fear of the Lord, we learn to hate evil and run away from it. It's when we see our sin and see the sacrifice of God that we learn to love him with an unbelievable love and we bow in reverential awe and say, God, you are Jehovah. You are my Lord, and I'm going to learn to fear your name. Well, the consolation in this psalm is that God saves us by his free grace and offers us hope and guidance and deliverance that we don't have to live in the depths forever. His promises are of rescue and redemption. And so the sinner cries. We used to sing that hymn, Out of My out of the bondage, my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus I come. Remember that? Jesus I come. Out of my sorrow, out of my night, out of my shameful failure and loss, out of my unrest and arrogant pride, out of my fear and dread of the tomb, Jesus I come to thee. And when I embrace thee, I learn to follow thee, to fear thy name. So the soul that's forgiven then makes a vow. Determination. That's verse 5 and verse 6. Okay, Lord, you have saved me. You've forgiven me. I'm still in the mess. Uh, maybe I'm still in the, in, in the uh, depths. The waves are still crashing over my head. But now I've been thrown a rope. I have hope because of the promise of God and the forgiveness that comes by his grace. So the psalmist says, verse 5, I will wait for the Lord. My soul is going to wait for the Lord, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord even more than those who watch for the morning. And he repeats that twice. The word wait is mentioned three different times. And I like the fact that he says, I wait on Yahweh, the one who makes promises and keeps them. And it's my soul that waits on God. We don't wait very well. We're not very good at patience. The Christian church doesn't get high marks in the school of waiting. Waiting means that we have to have patience. We have to, we have to submit our agenda to another agenda. 
The great Philip Brooks, who was a monster of a man, he was a giant man, 6'6", or something like that, weighed 300 pounds, wasn't overweight, he was just a huge guy, but he was as gentle as gentle could be, and his congregation loved him. One of the greatest characteristics about Philip Brooks was he was a patient man. One day, one of his parishioners came into the room, and he saw him pacing back and forth, Pacing back and forth with an anxious look on his face. He said, Pastor, Pastor Brooks, what's wrong? He says, I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. (laughs) And that just about expresses half of my life. And God says, you need to wait. By the way, waiting in the midst of the depths is where God teaches us lessons we could not learn any other way. That's why the Bible talks so much about waiting. Did you know that the Hebrew word waiting literally means twisted? It's two things being twisted together. And it appears that those two things are expectation and perseverance. So waiting is this idea, I'm hoping for something, but I've got to endure until it comes. And that's what the Lord tells us to do. And and now the psalmist says, that's what I'm going to do. I don't know when deliverance is coming, but I'm looking for it. And I'm going to wait on the Lord, the one who makes a promise and always keeps them. I'm going to wait on the Lord, verse 6, who is my boss. And I'm going to wait on the Lord with more passion than those who are watching on the city wall for the morning sunrise. The picture is of a sentinel who's guarding the city and whose watch is over once the sun comes up. He's done. That's quitting time. And he can't wait. It's been a long night, and he just can't wait, so to speak, until the light comes. Or imagine someone who's with a sick loved one, and they are praying and just waiting for morning light when the doctor can come Or they can get medication. Or some people think it might refer to the Levites who wanted to offer the morning sacrifice but couldn't do it until dawn would break. And they were waiting to worship God in this joyous celebration, waiting for the dawn. For us, it means that we're waiting for that day of deliverance. We're waiting for God to pull us out of the water and to rescue us. We know he will. He's faithful to his word. But he's told us until then, he's told us to wait. Until then, he's told us to be patient. How can I do it? Verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My whole soul waits for the Lord. And in his word do I put my hope or my trust. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, All things in the Bible have been written to us for our admonition and learning, so that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Which means you cannot have hope unless you're a Bible student. You cannot have hope unless you are used to taking the promises of God and making them your own. In a few verses later, chapter 15 and verse 13, Paul said it this way. May the God of hope, this is kind of his benediction, may the God of all hope fill you with joy and peace as you believe his word, 
as you believe in him, so that you might abound in hope. Between the God of hope and abounding in hope is believing the word of God. That's the connector. And when I'm in the word and I'm reading the word and I see God is sovereign, he's my Lord, and God is a, well, the covenant God who makes a promise and always keeps them, and I take those promises to be mine, then I have hope. And you cannot endure without hope, and you cannot have hope without the word. And so the psalmist says, I'm waiting because of the promises of your word, and in that word I have hope. It was this word of God that brought comfort to the soul of John Bunyan when he felt that he was a great sinner, and God's grace was abounding in great mercy to him. The author of Pilgrim's Progress or think of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. John Newton, by the way, was a captain of a slave ship. And when someone wrote his biography, they wrote as the title, they chose as the title, Out of the Depths, from Psalm 130. And it was John Newton who wrote, I'm a wretch, but I've been saved by the amazing grace of God. And then one line in that wonderful hymn, he said, Grace has taught my heart to what? Fear. And grace my fears relieve. So when the grace of God comes into my soul, I learn to fear God. And when the grace of God comes into my soul, all other fears are gone. That's what this psalm is all about. By the way, G. Campbell Morgan said, referring to verse 4, talk about comfort. He said, during the revival of 1905 in Wales, this is how they translated verse 4. And there is forgiveness with you, enough to frighten us. Wow. When I am forgiven, I fear God. When I fear God, I'm determined to follow God. And when I follow God, I want everyone else to do the same. And that's the last movement of this great song. Look at verse 7 and 8. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. Israel, that was the believing people of God in the old covenant. The believing people of God in the new covenant, that's the church. So now the psalmist wants to persuade the church. Put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. What will motivate you to put your trust in the Lord? What will cause you to put your hope in the Lord? Two things. His unfailing love and his complete redemption. The very two things you need. Unfailing love means his love never fails. It's always constant. You need forgiveness of sin and his redemption is full. It's plenteous. It's overflowing. It's more than you need. And you need love that abides with you forever. And that comes in Jehovah too. The very two things that you long for are the two things that should drive you to trust him and hope in his word. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. And he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. The Bible is full of promises to Israel. You read it in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 
uh, 11, Isaiah chapter 60, Isaiah 65 and 66, Zechariah 12 through 14. The promises that God is going to regather Israel. It's in the New Testament, in Romans 11, in the book of Revelation. God is going to redeem his people. He will, he shall redeem Israel. But he's going to redeem all of those who put their faith and trust in him. And that's a promise you can take for today. Bottom line is this. Faith in our Savior brings forgiveness to our soul. And even though we're in the midst of the trial and we still feel like the waters are over our head, we can trust his word because God is faithful. We can trust his providence. God is our loving Lord. And one day, one day, the dawn will break. Deliverance will come. God's name will be glorified. God's people will be vindicated. And we'll go from the depths to the height one day if we continue to trust his name. It was back in 1830 that there was a group of people who didn't sleep all night. Instead, they met in places of worship and on the hills outside of their cities, thousands of them. It was August of 1830 when the slaves in the West Indian colonies of Great Britain were being given their full freedom. And they wanted to take full advantage of it. They were waiting for the break of day. That first break of sunlight is when that proclamation would go into force. And they waited all night for the break of day. Why? Because then they were free. They had a promise. They trusted the promise. And they eagerly waited for it. You and I have the promises of God that are more sure than any, dec any declaration a government would ever make. And these promises are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. And God's promise is this. You trust in my word, you'll never be put to shame. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the promises Thank you for your word that tells us you delight in hearing our voice, that you forgive our sin, and when we fear you, we can trust you. We can wait on you even though we are in a hurry. We can submit to your sovereignty. We can learn in the school of waiting what it is to develop patience and to learn that you are a God who honors his word. Heavenly Father, I pray today that all your believing people would learn to live in hope, hope based on the sure promises of a word that will never, ever fail. In Jesus' name we pray.